So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Canada already has in place the best system in the world for production of marijuana for the medical sector. So we have very large facilities which exclude criminals by a big background check. Now, one of the cornerstones for last year's Liberal campaign was the legalization of marijuana. I've got questions about this. For example, what would that even look like? Who's going to profit from this? And what about all of those people that were locking up in jail and behind these drug offenses? To answer those questions, I got in touch with a Liberal MP who was recently at the UN as part of a hearing on the global response to drugs. And I spoke to a criminal defense lawyer who not only deals with drug cases, but was on the front lines of the law when the federal government began its crackdown on drug offenses in the 1990s. I'm Andre Demise, and this is Canada Land Commons. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player. Now for you, the listeners of Commons, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a 30-day trial to check out their service. And since you're listening to today's show, you might be interested in Big Weed, an entrepreneur's high-stakes adventures in the budding legal marijuana business, cooking with marijuana, or maybe quit using marijuana, reduce your need for weed with subliminal messages. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand for your free audiobook. John Struthers is a criminal defense lawyer who deals with drug cases of all sizes. Walk me through Canada's current marijuana laws, because I'm a little bit confused. Well, I think everyone is. It's pretty difficult when they tell uh, the population at large, we intend to legalize, but we also intend to arrest you in the meantime. Canada's marijuana laws are very broad. Trafficking in marijuana, for example, is passing a joint. Passing a joint at a school has a mandatory minimum sentence of six months in prison. What do you mean passing a joint? Like if, if I'm smoking up right, and I pass it to a friend who's sitting right next to me because he's smoking up too, right. that's trafficking? That's trafficking. So is driving it in your car. So is giving it to someone. So is lending it to someone. So without trying to distract the discussion, the laws have not changed at all. And, you know, Bill Blair the other day was clear that he was directing people to obey the law until it's changed. But it's pretty difficult to tell people, you know, dinner's in five minutes, but don't snack. So tell me about, a little bit about some of these mandatory minimum laws. 
Well, there's a change of government, remember. The new government, I think, is not nearly as committed to these forms of punishment as the old one. We have a new justice minister who's speaking about restorative justice and this sort of thing being much more uh, of interest to the current regime. I think what we had was a very retrograde government previously that determined that the only way to do anything was to put people in jail. And so as a result, there were multiple mandatory minimums. In the drug context, they have recently been expanded to include having possession of marijuana, for example, in a quantity exceeding uh, what might be personal use. Anywhere near a school is considered to be uh, an aggravating factor that would result in a mandatory minimum sentence. What if I live in a home with my backyard facing the school and I smoke up at home? Are you saying that it could be worse for me because I'm in proximity to a school? Absolutely. And I think the situation is that this has been left now pretty much to the discretion of prosecutors to determine whether or not they are going to proceed with the mandatory minimum sentences. But what inevitably that results in and has in the United States, as you probably know, is it puts so much power in the prosecution that there's often, you can either go to jail for six months if I proceed with the mandatory minimum, or you can plead to a non-mandatory minimum offense or a simple possession offense where there will be, let's say, a, a serious fine. That still results in a criminal record with all of its attended consequences. So you're essentially being put over a barrel by the nature of the consequences for not resolving the case. But the problem with marijuana offenses is that there's so many collateral consequences. For example, never traveling to the United States again for the rest of your life, despite the fact that many states have legalized now, the federal law is still anti-marijuana, very much so. And as a result, if you have a conviction for marijuana, in some cases even an arrest for marijuana, you will be denied entry to the United States. If it's disclosed to potential employers, particularly what they call a level four records check, which is if you're dealing with elderly people or vulnerable people like children, they're entitled to know even if you've been arrested for something, much less if you've been convicted. So having these sorts of things in your history are really debilitating, and it could result in people, for example, not getting medical licenses, not getting legal licenses, not contributing to our society in a way that people are capable of. I think the common perception is that marijuana is a, a business driven by thugs, smoked by potheads and stoners. And I think the image that a lot of people have is that the traffickers are black or indigenous, are caught up in some serious criminal gangs. But is that what your clients look like? Not at all. Look, right now, I think what's really happening is, uh, you know, I almost want to call it Elvis Presley syndrome. For many years, there was great music being played by uh, minority communities that was being ignored by the population at large until Colonel Tom Parker got a white boy to sing the stuff. All of a sudden, it went nuts and they made the money. This is about <laughs> money, all right? Right now, we've got former Prime Minister Turner and head of a marijuana company. We've got former Premier Ernie Eves head of a marijuana company. We've got a former gold medalist in the Olympics, Ross Regliati, who's the head of a marijuana company. The new regime is going to present enormous opportunities for people financially. Right now, the legal marijuana business in the United States is $6.7 billion. In about three years, it's anticipated that the legal marijuana business will be as big as the NFL. I think this could all go together because, I mean, the Super Bowl and chicken wings and nachos go together, add some wheat to that mix, and this is a financial juggernaut. The bottom line here is that there's a big transfer going on right now between minority communities, frankly, and establishment communities about who's going to make the money. Because it turned out, of course, there's really very few white boxers left. 
for a right. time they were all black now they're all latino it's because people don't take those kind of risks unless there's an enormous reward potential and nobody else is taking up the slack our minority communities became the drugstores for the rest of our community now Minorities use drugs at the same rate as everyone else. It's about 8 to 10% of people use illegal drugs, whether you're black, poor, rich, doesn't matter. Right across Well, the according to some stats that I've seen come out of the United States, in, in most states, black and Latino people use drugs less per capita than white people. Exactly. And so, I mean, at the end of the day, what's happened is that there's such an enormous amount of money involved that if you have no other prospects, if you have no other way to make a living, if you're shut out educationally, you're shut out with respect to job prospects, or you have a minor criminal record for marijuana, which makes you virtually unemployable, then, of course, you're in a position where it's almost irresistible to stand on the street corner and make, you know, $500 a night as opposed to making $5 an hour working selling shoes at Foot Locker. It's just not going to happen. So at the end of the day, the violence and the things that you speak of as collateral damage with the, the drug war are, in fact, as a result of prohibition. Al Capone wasn't shooting people over beer. He was shooting people over money. It's always about the money. And so what we have is a situation where the militarization of the police, the war on drugs, has resulted in an enemy. And if you have a war, you have to have an enemy. The enemy turned out to be the population of the country. And you have an occupying army, essentially, in minority communities conducting this war on drugs, which is a war on people. And you end up with an enormous problem, which is completely avoidable if you regulate, legalize, and actually look after the problems as a medical problem, as an actual social problem, as opposed to a criminal justice problem. And like alcohol and cigarettes, no one's recommending that children or anyone under the age of 18 have access or readily use illegal or even legal substances that are psychotropic. But, you know, to stop kids from using marijuana and uh, having access to it, you'll be in much better shape to regulate it than you are right now leaving it to the streets because it isn't working. We have the highest usage of teen marijuana usage in the world with the criminal justice system as our model for trying to prevent it. It's a total, abject, nightmarish failure. Nathaniel Erskine-Smith is a Liberal MP for Beaches East York. He recently represented Canada at a UN hearing on drug laws. What would marijuana legislation in Canada look like? I would like to see it look very similar to the regulation of alcohol and tobacco, where responsible adults who want to use the product are able to access it through regulated environments, say something like the LCBO, where there are personal grow limits as well, say up to five, six plants. Uruguay has a six plant limit. Okay. I think you could go the tobacco model in terms of regulating and restricting so commercial advertising So when you say five, well. six plant limit, do you mean per individual or? Yeah, be, uh, per individual is what So Uruguay I could just does. grow five or six plants on my balcony if I wanted to? That would be the idea, yeah. Okay. This would all get sorted out with the provinces. And I'm not sure how much of a lone voice I would be on the personal grow limit. For me, it's if you're tackling prohibition and the unintended consequences of prohibition, one of those unintended consequences is the rise in organized crime and fueling organized crime. And one way of tackling that black market is for recreational users to be able to grow a personal consumption limit that would have nothing to do with selling the product. So let's say that I, as an individual, wanted to start a marijuana business under your ideal world. What would my business look like? Well, there are any number of different models on that front, but 
someone interested in starting a production business, so growing well beyond the personal consumption, would have to go through a regulated framework similar to what we have right now for medical growers. Mm-hmm. It's a strictly reg- regulated industry. CAMH has a model that they've proposed. So it's sort of interesting that the Center of Addiction of Mental Health is proposing legalization, but they tackle it through a public health framework, which I think is the right approach. Uh-huh. And they suggest the LCBO model, which is government monopoly distribution, but not government monopoly production. Why does it have to be done through a government-controlled body? Uh, so it doesn't have to be done through a government-controlled body. So if you look at alcohol in Alberta, it's not. Right. Having said that, I think it is a responsible approach to start with a government-regulated and government-monopoly on the distribution side. Right. And for the similar reasons as alcohol, I mean, there are harms associated with the product. For decades, marijuana was legal, and it's still illegal. But you had people selling and possessing marijuana and being arrested for it. Yeah. So there was a high demand for marijuana in Canadian markets all across this country. And you had distributors, vendors, who are mostly black and indigenous that were being locked up for it. So when we experienced our escalation of gang violence in the late 80s to mid 90s, the majority of people that were being locked up for drug offenses were black and indigenous. So what you're seeing now is a model whereby the original vendors of the product are all locked away. And now you're legalizing the product and you're handing it over to businesses. For the most part, at least from what I've seen, it tends to be white male business owners. How does the liberal government actually square the multi-decade Canadian policy of fucking over black and indigenous communities by locking so many of our people away in jail, then making it legal, keeping us in jail and saying, hey, you know what, go ahead, open your businesses, but we're going to regulate it so much and we're going to make the price to entry so high that you who have been selling this product for so long are just not going to be able to profit from the industry that you introduced to Canadian markets. So first, you suggest that we're going to keep people in jail. Right. My approach, and again, I'm one voice in this, the government hasn't made up their mind one way or the other, yeah. but I would absolutely pardon and grant amnesty to every individual who has been convicted of a simple possession charge, right. and also individuals who have been charged with trafficking, relatively low-level minor, you know, we're talking mid to low-level individuals, and where there hasn't been any weapon involved, there's not been any violence involved, right. et cetera. So I would go pretty far on that because mm-hmm. I think it's absolutely outrageous that we've thrown people in jail for this. On the other side, though, I don't see any reason why we would restrict access to the marketplace on the production side. So I say the distribution well, side would be limited to the government. it's pretty heavily restricted now. I mean, here's a Toronto Life piece, the New Dealers, who's making a killing off of medical marijuana. Now, you're not going to be able to read the text from where you are, but if you scroll down the page, like it's just a bunch of white dudes okay. who are making a killing off the medical marijuana industry. And now I'm starting to see marijuana, which was in the 80s and 90s, seen as like the purview of criminals and thugs, now become a white collar, respectable type of profession. Where's the outreach going to be to the same communities that were so heavily penalized under previous drug laws? So marijuana has certain harmful effects in the same way alcohol does. So I think the public health approach is the right way to go. So it does have to be a pretty tightly regulated marketplace. I certainly wouldn't want to prejudice individual entrants in the marketplace right, who, right, right. by race, certainly. So, you know, what would you propose to reach out to them? Because, me personally? Yeah. Well, if you're asking me, I yeah, would say not only a blanket pardon, just like you're proposing. Yeah. Anybody well, I'm, who's I'm in, there. in jail for a nonviolent drug offense. Yeah, I'm there. But on top of that, give black and indigenous people a subsidy to get them out of jail and also give them a subsidy to start their own businesses. Own businesses in relation to? If they want to start a marijuana business. 
Why not come out of jail? And you obviously know the trade. You've probably got customers and clients. Maybe they're in jail alongside you. If you go back home, you've probably got your own market. Why not give the money to start up their own businesses? I would draw a distinction between production and distribution. Right, right. So, you know, the suggestion that someone has a clientele or a, a list that they could go back to, the problem with that is if you don't restrict the distribution of the product, you are opening yourself up as a government but also as a society to increase usage, increase consumption, and associated harms with that. So when you look at other jurisdictions that have decriminalized but not opened the floodgates, and similar to, say, Colorado, yeah. usage rates flatline. So it's absolutely unjust that we're throwing people in jail because we're not actually stopping people from smoking whatsoever. Right. But go the opposite route and to provide, I don't know, small grants or subsidies to small dispensaries or whatever the case might be, that is probably going too far the other way. When you look at the medical marijuana companies, I mean, right now it's such a tightly regulated marketplace that it's pretty difficult to access for anyone without a ton of capital, right. in part because there are very strict, you know, you need video surveillance. There, there, are, there are any number of very strict uh, regulations associated with it. If it's a recreational product and you're not having to make the same claims and have the same quality control as you will with the medical product, maybe there will be lower level regulatory standards that more people can access that. But again, look at uh, the way alcohol is produced. There are any number of craft breweries or any number of individuals that come up with a label but have it produced by uh, something like Cool Brewery. Right. Capital is still required for that, but I don't know that it necessarily excludes people based upon The capital is required, but because of the production process, it is pretty expensive to open up a craft brewery. Yeah, to open up a craft brewery, the sure. The process from simply growing the hops to it being converted into beer is a pretty expensive process. But the process of growing a marijuana plant and then selling it is pretty cheap. Yeah, that's right. If there weren't concerns about the harms associated with the product and there weren't concerns about who the product is sold to, especially kids under the age of 18. So when you look at the CAMH study and you look at the impact of marijuana on mental health and yeah. triggering various uh, mental health disorders, we need more research. And part of having a legalized and regulated product means we can do more research. But I, I would be wary of allowing anyone to open up a corner store and start selling the product. I guess the question I really wanted to get more to is letting people go, I don't think necessarily goes far enough. There's got to be some form of reconciliation. Now, I throw out one idea, which is yeah. subsidies to start your own business. But if that's not viable, then what do we do? I mean, it's a good question. It's a question that I think is an important one to answer because for me at least, I think it is absolutely unjust that we throw anyone in jail for the simple possession of drugs for personal use, yeah. especially marijuana. And for individuals who have gone to jail or received records and have been prejudiced because of those records for any reason whatsoever, it is a cost imposed upon those individuals by government well, and, and on not the, just government policy. communities as well, not and just the person, a, absolutely, their families the and their communities yeah, too. Yeah, I won't disagree with you there at all. So the question of reparations is really what you're talking about for an unjust government policy. Yeah. You know, are there any number of unjust government policies that there either have or haven't been reparations? I think it's definitely something for us to consider. I, I actually don't know what the right answer is off the top of my head, but I, I would question the notion that because someone's got a, a list of former clients that we just give them their book of business back. People are still selling marijuana now. People are being arrested for marijuana possession and distribution now. Why can there not be a directive from the federal government to say, hey, you know what, just back off for now? Let's let's try to work out this legislation, but in the meantime, let's not be locking people up for... Glad, I'm very glad you raised that. I recently went to the United Nations and spoke about decriminalization and moving away from incarceration for simple drug possession two days after I got back from New York. 
I got a call from a constituent who was in Espanola, had 10 grams of marijuana on him. The trial is proceeding in June. He's made a generous offer to legal aid, and in Toronto, immediately the charge would be diverted. Because it's in Espanola, the Crown is perhaps of a conservative viewpoint. They're proceeding with the trial in June. It's absolutely outrageous. And in my view, and I've requested this of the Minister of Justice, I believe that they should intervene and give a directive to all Crown counsel across the country. These are federal crowns, so absolutely within our jurisdiction. And we should be giving a directive to say we are not pursuing simple possession charges at a bare minimum. Is that something that we can expect from the Liberal government, though? So I'm a backbencher. You can, ex- you can expect me to continue to raise this, especially right. in advance of my constituents' trial in June. I will be very vocal on this. I can't guarantee one way or the other what the government's position is I bring this be. up because this is very personal to me. I mean, I personally know people who are being prosecuted yeah, outrageous. on marijuana offenses. It's hypocritical, too. I know a lot of people who are being prosecuted or are locked up right now. They're just trying to make a living. There was no other avenue available to them, and they're trying to make a living the best way they could. Some of them were trying to feed families. Some of them were trying to put relatives through school. We're taking people that could be productive members of society and then warehousing them in prison. So all I can say is I completely agree with everything you said. Okay. I, it's absolutely. <laughs> no, so I, I'm, I, when I got back from finishing my final year of school, I did a bit of volunteer work for the CCLA. Yeah. I, uh, I'm a lawyer by profession. On a personal note, like I've got Crohn's disease. And so for me, on a recreational standpoint, marijuana has always made more sense to me than alcohol, which really yeah. Uh, Alcohol could really do some damage. It really does some damage. So, and like you, I have any number of friends who have received uh, charges or it's affected their lives in in any number of different ways. So I I can't be more emphatic. It's completely unjust proceeding with prosecutions in the interim and, and not taking a more serious stance on providing amnesty and pardoning people going forward. Let's say that we legalize marijuana. What happens with other drugs? What happens with opioid based drugs like heroin? What happens with cocaine? Right now, We're not going to go down the road of Portugal, which decriminalized the simple possession of all drugs in 2001, actually. It's it's still a crime to sell. If you have possession of those drugs, you can't just legally use them however you like, but it is decriminalized, so you're not going to face a prison sentence for it. But you may face a stiff fine. Either a fine or or you get diverted into a, a, a drug treatment program. And I think... That model that moves away from incarceration and moves toward a health-focused approach and moves toward a harm reduction approach, mm-hmm. that's certainly what I will be advocating for. And Prime Minister Trudeau has spoken to the importance of safe injection clinics and mm-hmm. pointed to Insight in Vancouver as a very useful and successful model. So I'm hopeful we'll see more of those sites and that approach across the country. But what do we do about those fines, though? If I'm facing a stiff, let's say, $1,000 fine, and I was just barely able to afford this bag of heroin, I just don't have the money. What do I do then? So there are models that exist with respect to uh, diversion courts. So one way, if you want to avoid that $1,000 fine, perhaps, I'm not suggesting this is the ideal model, but one model is to avoid whatever fine or ticket you would enter into a certain drug treatment program. And so there are models in that way. There are other models that suggest, you know, you take the Insight model specifically, you can walk into Insight with possession of a drug for personal consumption, you're not going to receive a ticket whatsoever. It's a free space in order to encourage individuals to go there and enable themselves to access the healthcare and the supervised injection that is going to ensure that they avoid transmission of, of HIV and other uh, illnesses. And, and I mean, that model for me, I mean, I've read that case multiple times. I think that Supreme Court was right to say it saves lives and that to prevent the previous government from shutting it down. So I would certainly like to see that harm reduction model extended across the country. How much money does the government expect to make off of the legalization of marijuana? We did not, purposely did not, include projections of revenue 
for marijuana in our fiscal platform. Right. And the reason for that, two things. We didn't want to presume that we were going to make a certain amount and then get it wrong. And by the way, there have been studies. Fraser Institute had one many, many years ago to say it was a very lucrative industry. I'm not, but why, I'm not but so why not? Why not actually just say, hey, listen, this is how much money that we can make. Not that we're going to make it, but yeah, if we legalize marijuana, we could make X amount of dollars off of it. Well, it depends on the model that you take, right? Yeah. So, I mean, A, it would presuppose what model we'll ultimately arrive at. B, and I think we have to be careful with the taxation of it because the higher you tax it, the more you do create that black market and allow it to thrive. So I don't think there's any easy answer to what we're going to do uh, right now with the level of taxation. And I also think the danger to the alcohol model is where you receive a glossy flyer in the mail from your government effectively through the LCBO encouraging consumption. And I think we do have to be careful again as we're legalizing not everyone's comfortable with the product at all, let alone... Well, what's wrong with getting a glossy piece of mail from the government talking about marijuana consumption? To my mind, alcohol is a more dangerous product. So pull those two ideas apart. Sure. First, alcohol is more dangerous than marijuana. Completely agree. But that doesn't necessarily mean because we send glossy flyers for alcohol that we should also send glossy flyers for marijuana. Well, so the, I, the, I get the, the flyer in my mail. The alternative they... view might be to turn around and say... Let's stop doing both yeah. or let's let's recognize the harms associated with alcohol and move in the opposite direction. And the other thing is before we start going down that road of really commercializing marijuana, yeah. my own view, and this is, you know, I am i don't think marijuana is particularly harmful, all things considered, but I would say the prudent approach would be let's do more research and let's make sure we get it right before we do expand commercialization of the product. How can you get other Canadians on board that legalizing marijuana is the right thing to do? I think from uh, two perspectives. So in the course of the way I view politics and why I was drawn to the Liberal Party overall and, and why I ran and happy to serve in the Liberal government is if we can take an approach that is not just fair for individuals. So when you talk about the injustice to individual lives and the damage to lives and families, that's a matter of fairness and we can make that pitch and we should. The other aspect of this is taking a fiscal responsibility look. And I think there are any number of Canadians who know that our prison systems are clogged. It's incredibly expensive to house a federal inmate. And if we were to remove individuals from jail, if we were to remove the, the records that are currently hurting their employment prospects, there is a significant return on our investment. So it's not just the fair thing to do, it's also the smart thing to do. If you were saying that to your grandmother, do you think she'd be sold on that pitch? My grandmother went to uh, jazz clubs when she was a kid, <laughs> when she was in her twenties. So I don't think I have to pitch her too hard. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what about my very conservative grandmother? You know, when you talk about evidence-based policymaking, marijuana is the easiest drug to make this pitch to. Yeah, it's not a particularly harmful substance in comparison to other substances that are under the uh, Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. I'm also hopeful that, so there's an organization in the States called Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. It's former judges, former police officers, chiefs of police, former prosecutors. That law and order approach and that pitch to say, this prohibition isn't working, hasn't worked, it's been a failure. I think that actually does have great success with people who may not view drug use as a particularly beneficial activity and, and do view it as a problem in the first place. But to say we're throwing people in jail for no reason because we're not stopping consumption from happening yeah. and we can save money in the process, but we can also help people. So if you're concerned about drug addiction as the root problem of all of this, a health-focused approach is the one that makes sense. And the black market has unintended consequences and organized crime and allowing profits to flow to organized crime is a principal one among them. So I don't know if I would convince your grandmother that way, but I, you know, I may have made a small dent. Last question. How soon would I be able to buy weed at Tim Hortons? When, when can I pick up a brownie? 
<laughs> so actually, uh, you mentioned brownie. So I, I don't know. This is the, the more difficult question. I think it's very easy to talk about recreational use of marijuana and the sale through an LCBO type outlet. Yeah. I think it's very easy to talk about pharmacies selling medical grade and making certain claims, and that goes through a pharmacy. I think it's going to be a more difficult conversation, and I don't know what it looks like when we talk about edibles, when we talk about oils, and when we talk about what the current dispensary model looks like across the country. And they may need to adjust their expectations. Is there a timeline that the federal government has to get these new laws on the books? No, but put it this way. I've asked Mr. Blair the same question, and he is very intent on getting this done as fast as possible. So by that, I take later 2016, early 2017. But I, I honestly don't know. How soon would I be able to get Dre's Dro to the market? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that I don't know, unfortunately. That's our show for this week. To continue the conversation on social media, just hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. Search for Canada Land Commons. It'll be the first result you find. Our producer is Kevin Sexton and music, as always, by Nathan Burley. To visit the website, go to canadalandshow.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, Not Sorry. If you'd like to get in contact with me, you can email me, andre at canadalandshow.com. You can subscribe to Canada Land Commons wherever you get your podcasts. And since you like the show, support us patreon.com slash canadaland the next episode of canadaland shortcuts will be back on thursday and canadaland commons returns on tuesday until then peace this episode is brought to you in part by the douglas mattress now i've said it before and i'll say it again one of the best and i mean the best things you can do for yourself is to get a good quality mattress The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.